the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 356 for Monday, October 3rd, 2011. Good evening, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, the show where you send in some questions, you send in some tips, we provide some answers, and together we all learn something new about the Mac and other Apple and other technology, really. Here from Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton. Here in, not from, but in Fairfield, Connecticut, John F. Braun. Well, you're, you're coming from Fairfield, Connecticut right now, aren't you? Uh, uh, currently, yes. Okay. So, I, you know, I, that, I see that, what that, you're saying. But, but I get what you're saying, because it, you could be talking about perhaps where you were born or where you grew up, and, and those places are not necessarily uh, the place where you are right now. Yeah, I'm. I'm not quite as well traveled uh, as you are, but yeah. Well, you know, I mean, it, it is what it is. Um. So you know, I mentioned we talk about uh, technology in general, John. And uh, last yeah. week, I I went down uh, to New York City to attend the launch uh, event or the announcement event, I should say. Yeah. Of the Amazon, well, the whole new Kindle lineup, right? There were four yeah. new Kindles. Yeah. Nice work. I was following you on uh, hey, thanks. TMO Live, I think it is, when we do this sort of thing. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we, we did yeah, the, nice the work. Whole live updates thing. Thanks. Very impressive. Oh, my gosh. It's interesting. Yeah. Y- you know, um, it's going to be, I, I, part of the problem was that they wouldn't let anyone touch these things after you know jeff bezos came on stage he did his little dog and pony show and it was fine he was fine uh and then that's unusual yeah especially when you invite people to come from you know all corners of the globe to to this event it's like well dude you could have put that on the freaking tv um so that was a little frustrating but but above that or beyond that rather it, it was a little curious like okay well why aren't we allowed to touch it? You know, and it was clearly um, a, a PR move. The, you know, the, 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 um, the, the demoers were like, well, you know, we can't let you do this. And the PR reps were like, like hawks around there. If you even got within, you know, six inches of this thing, they basically would slap your hand away as politely as possible. They were all very friendly, of course. Well, but, uh, my take, if they do that, is that they were afraid that the, 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 I'll give you my take is that yeah. the device is so fragile and maybe not ready for prime time that they didn't want to let anybody touch it. That, that's certainly a reasonable assumption. Either the hardware or the software or both is not ready for prime time. But yeah, uh, you know, I have another uh, thought about that is that perhaps they wanted to ensure that the story that is told about this thing for the next two months is the story they told us. Right. Uh, and I, I realize I sound a little tinfoil hatty when I say that, but, you, you know, they get on they got on stage. They gave us their, you know, message. Jeff Bezos gave us Amazon's, you know, message about what these devices are, especially the Kindle Fire, uh, because it's this seven inch sort of, you know, th- there's this gap between laptop and smartphone. Right. And the, the iPad sits sort of what I would consider the high end of of that gap. And this Kindle Fire sits a little closer to the smartphone than the laptop, right? Because it's a little smaller and and presumably a little slower and, and all that. But they they did not want us digging and 
talking about other things that uh, either aren't ready, like you said, or perhaps just not part of what they want the conversation to be about for the next two months. So, um, so that'll be interesting. I did. I, they were really keen on mentioning that this thing will fit comfortably in one hand. And so I sat and watched one of the uh, product demonstrators and I watched him like a hawk for about five minutes straight with my eye just, and he had the thing in his left hand and he was, he was, you know, no problem. He had kind of fingers on either edge of the device. He was holding it and uh, in portrait mode and, and, you know, manipulating it because it's got a touchscreen with the right hand. And uh, I figured if he was there to show us that this thing worked great in one hand, but it didn't, that at some point he would stumble or falter or, you know, have to readjust because it was terribly uncomfortable. And and he never did that in the period of time that I was watching him. So uh, I would have to assume that this thing actually does, at least in, in a sense, fit comfortably in one hand, which is good, you know, but it'll be interesting. We've got one on order. We'll we'll get one either when they come out or if Amazon wants to send us one ahead of time, we'll. You know, we'll take a look at it, but um, it's an interesting device. I think I think they'll sell a ton of them. Uh, I think they'll sell a lot of them to people that want iPads, but don't want to buy iPads. You know, the people that think they want iPads, but aren't actually ready to spend the money on an iPad. I mean, for 200 bucks, it's uh, it's a much easier purchase to justify. Okay, and yeah, so I think in a nutshell, what they did is they announced uh, three Kindles uh, ebook Kindles, right? E-ink based Kindles, right? I mean, you can read on the on the Kindle Fire too. So you know, important distinction is really just the screen, not so much that. I mean, you you know, it's not like you can't read on the Kindle Fire, but it is is not e-ink. It's a you know LCD right. screen or color, color yeah. LCD. Yeah, right, right. Okay, so it looks like a potential iPad competitor. Sure. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, it, you know, I iPad competitor, of course, that's a loaded term because people get all, you know, up in knots about that. I think I think at some level, as I said, it will be for those people that that want an iPad, but but will not spend the money for an iPad. Uh, mm-hmm. If someone's willing to spend the money for an iPad, I think they'd, they'll, they'll probably opt to get the iPad as opposed to the Kindle Fire. Um, in that sense, I don't necessarily see it competing. But but we have to see these devices. I mean, it, you know, I'm making a lot of assumptions because, you know, we have limited information which is sort of a drag, but that's how it goes. Okay. Yeah. And I checked you out. So you, uh, so you, so you took my travel suggestion or at least you, uh, I did you, uh, take your travel suggestion. Yeah. I well, took- for me, I like, uh, you know, I've come to visit you, uh, you know, I've driven and I've taken the train and I, I like, uh, Amtrak and I especially like the, uh, the Acela, but now, uh, and so you did that. And I guess for where the venue, where you're coming from, uh, I guess it wasn't totally convenient for you to get to the, train station in Boston. Right. But, uh, but it dumped you right where you needed to be in New York city. So yeah, that was the right. Exactly. I, I drove to the train and it was about, I actually chose to drive to the route 128 station, which isn't in downtown Boston, but oh, it's right. easier to park there and, uh, and easier to get out of there. If I were to come back during, you know, rush hour or, or something, uh, as it turns out, I was back earlier than I expected, but, um, but yeah, it was, uh, you know, I drove down whatever it was, the hour and change to the train station, but then it, Amtrak brings me right to Penn Station in New York, and the event was, I don't know, three or four blocks from there. So I just walked. Yeah. It was good. And I was surprised. Uh, so apparently they've added Wi-Fi, because last time I took the Acela, they did not have, uh, uh, they had power outlets, I think, as as do most trains. But uh, yep. but that's neat. Yeah, we, we, we were chatting on that. I took the train, too, and then we'll move on to some questions. I actually took the train to uh, uh, New York City 
over the weekend to go to a photo walk. And we were blessed yesterday with very nice weather. And I was in the uh, uh, Red Hook uh, section of Brooklyn. Very, very nice. Cool. Uh, you'll put uh, some pictures up on your uh, website that will have to go away once Mobile Me dies. But we'll be able to see it um, until then. You know, actually, this event, and I, and I think probably what I'm going to migrate to, uh, and I already post some things here, but Flickr to me looks like the best uh, oh, yeah. replacement for, for posting my pictures. And also the leader of the group set up, you know, a special group where you can post your pictures. And it integrates with uh, with Aperture, uh, integrates with Flickr. So, so I think I'm, I'm going to move my stuff or republish it to, uh, to Flickr, I think, is going to be my final decision. Though cool. you told me about that WordPress thing. So I may experiment with that as well. But yeah. Still got a little time, right? Of course. Yeah. All right. Andy writes, uh, the subject of how to move a time machine backup was so totally topical for me as I was doing the very same thing uh, this week. I bought a new Airport Extreme and planned to plug in my present portable backup drive to the Airport Extreme and continue my backup as normal. I soon found out that this is not possible for all the reasons that we talked about because the backup was set up to be local and not uh, networked. I uh, also realized that I should have either purchased a time capsule or an additional additional backup drive instead. So I have some related questions as I travel all the time. How can I a have a home based backup on the time capsule and B have a mobile backup to carry with me when I travel? Ideally, I should be able to plug the same laptop into the home airport extreme and then unplug and carry with me when I travel. Can you help? Uh, so I'm not, well, he actually said, uh, uh, however, ideally I should be able to plug the same portable into the home airport extreme. So I'm not sure if you meant portable computer or portable drive. Uh, so we'll talk about both. Uh, if you want to take the same drive with you, that is possible. Uh, the first thing you need to do is plug your, um, portable drive into your time capsule or airport extreme and start the backup to that. You don't necessarily need to let it finish as we discussed in, in I think it was the last show, uh, but you need to let it start so that you get a uh, sparse bundle created out on that drive. You got to wait till the progress meter comes up for the first backup. Uh, once you've done that, then you can either let it finish or not, and you can plug it into your computer or into uh, the time capsule and, and it'll work fine. But here's the thing you, I don't believe the system is going to do it automatically. If you move the uh, hard drive from your uh, time capsule or airport extreme to your plug, you know, plug directly into your Mac via USB, your Mac will not see that as the backup destination because your Mac says, I know I'm backing up to a drive that's attached to a network device. So you're going to have to go into the time machine preferences on your Mac and just swap it back and forth. I don't believe you're going to be able to do it automatically with the OS, but I believe you can use something like Marco Polo or help me, John, what's the name of that other app similar to Marco Polo? Is it the airport airport location? That's the one. Yep. So both of those apps will take a series of, um, uh, they, they essentially have sensors. They, they check to see what's the name of your Wi-Fi network. What's, you know, you can, you can build sort of criteria. Uh, and if a set of criteria is met, it then goes and changes a bunch of settings. And perhaps you can use one of those to change your time machine settings uh, back and forth. I don't know. I haven't tried it, but, but that would be the only way I could think of to automate it. Otherwise you just got to go and change it manually as you, but you're doing it manually anyway, because you're either plugging the drive into your Mac or you're plugging the drive into the 
uh, time capsule, in which case, you know, you, you, you're doing some part of the process. Hopefully you can do the rest. That's my thought anyway. I have one final thought. I Go. wonder if it'd be useful to look at something like Dolly Drive, because I believe Dolly Drive will do this in the background. I think it's a little smarter about it than you having to manually switch things back and forth. Well, Dolly Drive backs up to their cloud. But I, I thought it, I thought it, I'll have to review their, it, uh, offer, but, but I thought it had ability to, to also do it locally. I, I the, think the local backup with Dolly Drive is a, a clone only. I don't think it's a time machine backup. I think it's just a clone. Oh. I think un, unless something with Dolly Drive has changed that I'm unaware of. But that's how it was initially. Okay. When they yeah, I haven't it. actually tried it. I, I just seem to recall that they they have the they can go to both the cloud and to uh, and to a local backup. Right. So, right. Yeah, I have to play with that. I I know I have a a code somewhere yeah. buried somewhere to 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 give it a whirl. Uh, yeah. it, it, it's in the pile. Cool. All right. Uh, let's go to and I hope I'm pronouncing. Well, you're going to pronounce your name for me. Kyron, I believe, is is how we pronounce. Uh, his name and uh, a question in the last show and a completely different question in this show. Hi, John and Dave. Uh, this is Owen, oh, pilot Pete. Don't, I can't forget Pete. Um, this is Kyron here from uh, Dublin in Ireland. And uh, one more quick question for you, if you don't mind, uh, which is read the new mail in Lion. Um, one of the things I've noticed is that I use two IMAP accounts, one Gmail and one, um, one mobile me. And uh, which were working fine uh, with junk mail uh, prior to upgrading to a uh, line. And uh, if you know when you normally get a mail that appears in your junk folder, um, you kind of get a little section that says, you know, junk mail, not junk mail, or I think it's not junk or something like that is the button that you can click. Once you click that button, it usually pops that mail that was incorrectly moved to the junk mail folder back into your inbox. And this feature seems to have disappeared since I've upgraded to uh, to Lion on both uh, my MacBook Pro and uh, an iMac 24-inch. And uh, it's a little bit frustrating because some, sometimes mail does seem to grab uh, grab or flag, sorry, junk, junk mail incorrectly and moves it to the junk mail folder. And it was always quite handy just to hit not junk and it would move it back to the inbox. So I have upgraded a friend's computer as well, but that was in clean install of Snow Leopard up to line and it didn't seem to happen. So I'm sure there's a, a setting somewhere that re-enables it. Um, so it allows me to actually correct mail or actually try and teach it that some of these folders or some of these incoming mails are not junk. Uh, I hope that wasn't too much of a ramble and you made some sort of sense. Thanks very much, guys. And this is where you cut me off. All right, Kyron. I think I think we know what you're going after. So, yeah, uh, the use the UI of how to deal with this in Lion has changed slightly. Uh, if you go to Mail Preferences and go to Junk Mail, first you've got to make sure Enable Junk Mail Filtering is on. Uh, that's obviously step one. If that's not on, then it's not going to do any of this. And then you want to set it to uh, when Junk Mail arrives. You want to have it uh, move it to the junk mailbox. Otherwise, it's just going to stay in the inbox. And what you're looking for uh, is sort of irrelevant. So presumably you've got both of those set. Uh, if you do, then what you need to do is customize your toolbar. Uh, if you go to the view menu in mail and go to customize toolbar, uh, there is now instead of a junk and not junk button, there is a thumbs up. And that thumb or actually, I guess in in the uh, 
when you're in that setting, it's actually thumbs down. Uh, and that thumbs down is how you tell mail it's junk. Now, I realize that's not exactly what you're looking for, but bear with me. Drag that into your toolbar and put it somewhere. When you have highlighted a message that mail thinks is not junk, it is a thumbs down. When you have highlighted a message that mail thinks is junk, however, it turns into a thumbs up and its process is reversed. It will tell mail, no, this is not junk and it will undo whatever uh, mail did it. So it will not flag it as junk and then it will put it back in your inbox. Do you use mail's junk? And hopefully that works for you, Karen. Uh, do you use mail's junk filtering or do you, you still just spam, spam sieve? Is that right, John? That's correct. And you know, it does something very similar. So every now and then I'll see something in the spam folder. So it has an explicit spam folder. Yep. And every now and then, so one, it color codes things, which is kind of cool as far as the, the spamminess of something. Huh. <laughs> and sometimes you can help it. So sometimes if something is on the border being spam, if you highlight it and then say mark as spam, it'll bring that into its intelligence to say, oh, okay, okay. Um, but also if something appears in the spam folder and it's not, then what you do is you highlight and, and they give you, they add menu choices and you say Mark is good and then it'll do the same thing. It'll take it out of the spam folder and put it back in your inbox. So very uh, similar model, I, I think. Cool. Cool. All right. I want to talk about our first sponsor for the show, which is a smile software. Uh, this month we get to talk about text expander and text expander touch. Uh, in fact, I think actually, uh, if I if I remember the agenda correctly, we're actually going to talk about text expander as part of an answer later. But uh, but text expander is a pretty cool app. What it does is it allows you to customize shortcuts. So you type it, for example, for me, and, and this is a very rudimentary uh, example, but you can go much further than this. For me, if I type uh, oh, six, oh, three. Now, six, oh, three is my area code. It automatically fills in my office uh, phone number. I do the same with C603. I also have it. If I type D H A D D, it fills in my address. Uh, and I even have John, I have your address in my uh, text expander snippets. So if I type J B A D D, it fills in your address. And that's great. You know, when someone says, oh, I want to send you guys something, I can just fill this stuff in and I don't have to think about it. I don't have to go to the address book. I don't have to look it up. It's right there. I've built it into text expander and I'm good to go. Uh, it syncs with Dropbox so uh, I can have it on all of my Macs without having to think about it. And you can do really cool things. I can have it insert uh, the contents of the clipboard. So if, for example, uh, I put a URL on the clipboard, I could build a little um, snippet in Text Expander that says, uh, please visit this URL uh, to check out the coverage that we did of your product, for example. And boom, it, you know, if I, uh, I copy that to copy the URL to the clipboard, I go into my email, I type a little shortcut for it, and maybe it's just, you know, uh, PM or comma PM for product mention, and then boom, it fills it out. And I've got the whole thing right there and, and I don't have to worry about it. And the URL is auto pasted in. I can have it paste the time, the date. Uh, I can even have it run little scripts. So it's really a cool geeky tool. And if you're not using it, frankly, I don't know how you'd use a computer without it uh, these days. Uh, uh, you can you can download a demo if you go to smilesoftware.com. Uh, it comes right there. You can just download and uh 
after you're convinced with the free trial that you want it, it's 35 bucks or 34 95 us. So uh, great for using email signatures and, uh, and all of that stuff. I, it's just one of those things. I, I can't imagine not using it on every Mac that I have. They also have text expander touch, which when you use it with apps that support it, it's really cool. And it does the same thing and you can get your same snippets over there and all of that good stuff. Uh, lots of Twitter clients use it, you know, Tweety, uh, sorry, not Tweety, uh, Twitter pro us for, uh, you can use it with, uh, the WordPress app, the blog press app, uh, express for WordPress, WordPress, uh, GV mobile plus supports it. All these different apps. And we'll put a link in the show notes so that you can see where it, uh, where it all goes. Simple note uses it. So if you use simple note, which, uh, is another great little iOS app and service, Text expander touch will work with that. That's available, of course, from the iOS app store for four ninety nine. But you can go to smilesoftware.com and uh, and learn all about both these great apps. Uh, and I highly encourage you to do so. I think you will, if you don't already use Text Expander, take a minute and go check it out. It's uh, it's well worth your time to explore the free trial, and and I have no doubt you'll uh, you'll love it. So that's Text Expander and Text Expander Touch from smilesoftware.com. And now we will uh, spend a moment revisiting a topic because we've we've done something on it here that will make life a little bit easier for you. Uh, Kevin writes, uh, why has my iMac stopped automatically sleeping? Uh, I have a 2008 iMac and it's set to sleep after 45 minutes of an activity, but it does not do it. Wake for network access is turned off. This has been going on for about a month with no particular triggering installation. I've tried closing all apps to no avail. None of them are keeping it awake that I know of. I have scrapped the power management plist file, as you guys have previously discussed. In the console, the one thing I've found is that uh, something occurring every uh, few minutes, and, and John's going to tell us what that is because, yet again, Mr. Braun didn't include the screenshot here for me. Uh what is it the, the, that the file sharing uh, thing says? I think it's something about SMB, right? Windows sharing is trying to connect. Oh, the, um, yeah, the, the message he was getting. Yeah, the firewall, it was, uh, yeah, SMBD was the process. And something from a certain IP address was trying to connect on port 139. Interesting. And it just kept repeating that message, which, yeah, I, I thought was uh, kind of weird. So... That's and that he uh, said he didn't have Windows file sharing on, so I don't know why he would be getting this message, but I don't think that's what's causing the problem. No, it's not. But I will say uh, in a situation like that where clearly it's on, right? I mean, the SMB demon is is running and reporting things to the console. I don't think that's related to his problem here, but uh, but I think it's worth turning it, making sure it's off. And the way I would do that is go, I would go into uh, system preferences sharing and I would turn it on. And then quit system preferences, come back in and turn it off uh, because sometimes the, you know, the checkbox in system preferences may not reflect the state of the system. And by checking it, you're kind of reinitializing the whole process and then unchecking it should undo all of that and turn it off. That that would be and that may be causing sleep issues. I don't know. But, it, you know, but that, um, that would be one thing. Yeah. I mean, I mean, just another computer being connected over the network. I don't think that prevents you from going to sleep. No, but if SMB, if the SMB server is running, 
mm-hmm. actually having another computer connected will prevent it from going to sleep. Oh, okay. Yeah. But, but even if it's not, if, if the SMB server is running and it's not quite right, which clearly it's not because it's not showing up as the checkbox. I mean, it could, there could be some setting with it that it just needs to be wiped out. That would be my thought. Uh, but there is another way to find out what's keeping your computers uh, awake. Isn't there, John? Absolutely. And uh, in the past, we've recommended an Apple article that would tell you all the possible things that would prevent sleep. But that's uh, that, that's exhaustive and it doesn't really give you the answer. Well, thanks to an article here from MGG Jim. Hi, Jim. <laughs> um, getting right down to it, Dave, the sleep, the uh, PM set command will tell you what's prevented sleep. And uh, we'll link to the article. But very quickly, if you do PM set space dash G, there will be a line in what is reported that will say sleep. And then this kind of cryptic thing, sleep zero. And then in parentheses, imposed by, and this mysterious number. And what is this mysterious number, you may ask yourself, Dave? I'm asking myself that right now. What is that mysterious number? Here's the mysterious number. Like in this case, it was 173, though it could be anything. It's the process ID of what prevented the Mac from going to sleep. Now, that would make you ask, well, how do I find out what the process ID of what's causing the thing not to sleep is? And there are two ways to do it. So one is there is a, a terminal command here that uh, you, you can do, and it's in the article, PS space dash AX space Vertical bar, which is a pipe, space, grep, space. They're not, they're not going to remember that. Just They, they no. can read it in the article, which is why it's there, which is why we're doing these MGG Answers articles, and they're freaking awesome. If I now, the other thing you could myself. do, of course, last I checked, of course they're awesome. Yeah. There are, <laughs> of course, the other way to find the process ID, Dave, whether I, which I think is a bit more straightforward, is you go an activity monitor. Yep. And then the left-hand column is PID, and if you click on that, it'll sort, and then you can uh, also see what... Uh, what process? Yep. And like in the example, it showed, uh, well, what was it? It was iTunes. It was, uh, iTunes, oh, yes. No. So I guess iTunes Actually, or it was Audio Daemon, right? It was, yeah, it was Core Audio D in, in the example that I that I put into this article with Jim. And, uh, and, and, and what it was is, uh, you know, iTunes tells the system to play audio. And so the system launches this, this separate little process to actually make the audio happen because that's how Mac OS X works. Uh, as soon as I stopped playback in iTunes, my sleep, there, there was no more imposed by in parentheses and my sleep went back to 60 minutes or you know whatever it was set to previously. Which is awesome. It, it's great. I, I, and I think this is a lion only thing. I tried this on Snow Leopard and I couldn't get it to tell me uh, I couldn't get the imposed by thing to appear for sleep. I had it appearing for something else. Uh, it might have been display sleep was or disc sleep or something like that but uh but but regular sleep was not showing up uh, as an imposed by thing in snow leopard so this is new mm-hmm. in lion so yeah good stuff we've had a lot of good mgg answers articles uh recently just put one up about skype power tips one that's awesome is well we just talked about it in the last show how to uh how to decide if you need more ram uh we've got uh i'm looking at the, the queue here uh and well, we're going to talk about some of these, so we'll, well, let's move on. But but check them out. This is uh, this is something we've wanted to do for a while. I know I ranted about it in the last show, but I'm, I'm very excited that we're we're finally doing these and publishing them and 
And now there's more mm-hmm. in the system than I know what to do with, which is fantastic because we figure out what to do with them is we post them is what we're doing. So at least one a day is going up now at the pace that we're going. And if we can keep it up, we will. Wow. Yeah. All right. Let's go to, uh, let's go to Steve and see what he says. Hi guys. This is Steve from Okinawa, Japan. I have a, Question about a problem running a uh, application. It'll it'll it stopped running under my username. I made a new username and it runs under that name. Uh, the app is parallels. Um, first six wouldn't run, so I upgraded to seven, and that wouldn't run either. Um, I repaired permissions several times using Disk Utility. I also went to the command line. Is it uh, HDUtil to repair permissions? I also did the uh, Lion um, boot into recovery partition and then, um, to, what is it, um, change password and then you go to the reset uh, users um, permissions uh, or something like that. I'm sure you know what that is. So I, I do know what it is. In fact, we did an MGG Answers article about that um, it, because you cannot, resetting permissions in OS ten only reset system level permissions. If you want to reset user permissions, you have to reset those with a special utility and we'll point to an article about that too. I've tried really everything. Um, so, and I even uh, deleted preps for parallels. I reinstalled parallels, uninstalled and reinstalled it several times. And like I said, it runs under a new username, the account that I made, but I can't get it to run under my account. So I either want to, fix it so it runs under my account or make a new account and safely move everything over and then get rid of my existing account. Uh, yeah, I, I hope that you would address this. Uh, and I have talked with Parallels um, support um, and they went back and forth and then they gave up and said, please contact Apple, which I have not done yet. Um, thank you. All right, Steve, let's see what we can do here. So knowing, and and I'm a little, I I would be surprised if parallel support didn't have you do these things, but you didn't mention them. So uh, we'll throw it out there in, in, in a general sense, what we're about to talk about here is good troubleshooting. uh, Especially once you've done the level of troubleshooting you've done, Steve, where you've, you've figured out that it works in one user account, but not the other. So we know for, almost absolute certain that whatever is stopping parallels from running for you is happening in your user account. So with that in mind, there are a couple of places to look. The first place to start is the library folder. Now I'm talking about your user library folder. So, and everything we're talking about is going to be inside your home folder. Uh, So you need to get to the library folder in snow leopard. That's easy. You go to your home folder and you click on library in Snow Leopard, uh, sorry, in Lion, it's not easy, of course, because you can't get there. So hold down the option key, or you you don't see it. Uh, in the Finder, hold down the option key, go to the Go menu, and choose Library. Holding down the option key will make that appear for you. Once you're there, first place to check is the Parallels folder. So just Library Parallels, or Home Library Parallels. And I would, with all of these, save one. Uh, I would just trash them. Don't empty the trash, but just put them in the trash. Get them out of the way. So there's that one. Then there is a library caches and there's a, a file there called com.parallels.desktop.console, uh, I believe. But really anything you see with com.parallels and caches, get rid of it. Uh, same for 
home library preferences. Anything you see with com.parallels, and there's going to be probably eight of them in here, get them out of the way. Uh, home library preferences parallels. There is a parallels folder inside the preferences folder. Get rid of that. You're probably all seeing a pattern here. We're digging around in where applications typically store things. Now, the other place that you would look for most apps is uh, home library application support. On my testing, and I do run Parallels, I did not find anything about Parallels and application support. It seems to barf its stuff elsewhere. Frankly, it probably should put it in application support, but it doesn't. So, you know, I'm glad I looked elsewhere. Uh, but that's, you know, but the, you it, it would not be surprising to find stuff in there uh, for other apps. Now, lastly, with Parallels, there's there's one more folder, and it's the folder that holds your virtual machines. Uh, now, this is not something you want to delete kind of willy nilly. Uh, it It's in home documents parallels by default, unless you've chosen to put it somewhere else. And these files can be very, very large, you know, several gigabytes uh, a piece easily, one for each virtual machine. And they could get, you know, huge 30, 40 gigabytes, depending on how much data you wind up putting out on your virtual drives. So I would move the virtual machines out of that folder, uh, but First, I would I would get rid of everything else first, as we said, put it in the trash, don't empty it and now try to launch parallels. If it launches, then you're good to go. Uh, but if it doesn't, then try moving these virtual machines out of your your documents folder. But again, don't don't delete them because that's where all your data is. Uh, but again, they, they are stored in your home folder. So it, it's you know, we're just kind of in a general sense, we're looking for everything about this app that's stored in that folder to see what of them uh, is causing the trouble. So that's, that's how we roll with that. Do you have anything to add to that, John? Mm. <clears throat> I haven't been using parallels lately. No, I mean, just in general, kind of, you know, any, any other places you would look if an app, if you knew an app was, was not launching because of something in your home folder, not necessarily parallels, but, but really anything. Mm. I mean, it's, you know, caches, preferences, application support, or, and the root of the library folder. You know, uh, uh, possibly. Oh gosh, uh, launch daemons. Oh yeah, right. Sometimes you get stuff that there are a couple of them. Let me let me bring it up here. Yeah, uh, I think library and there are various ones. So, uh, yeah, launch agents and launch daemons. I think are a couple of other places where stuff that's related to proper starting up of an app may live, and if yep. it's not there. Uh, right. Yeah. I think that's yeah. the two launch agents, launch daemons, both in your home folder. And well, in this case, yeah, I would, I would think it's the, uh, the home folder and right home. now I'm looking in mine and I just see home agent or launch agents, home library folder, right? Correct. Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Right. Just wanted to be clear about that. Cool. All right. Uh, then we will move on to Mark. Mark writes. I have two external firewire drives hooked up to my mid 2008 iMac. One of the drives is my time machine drive and the other I use for a nightly clone using carbon copy cloner. If my Mac has been left on for a while, then the iMac does not go to sleep, but the drives do spin down in accordance with my system preference settings. When I return to it, I then have to wait for the two firewire drives to spin back up one after the other, usually rather than both at the same time before the system will act upon my mouse click. I can understand why my system needs to my system drive needs to spin up, obviously, but I have no idea why the iMac insists on also waking up the two external FireWire drives before it responds to my clicking. 
I tried my own mid of Google foo, as you put it, John, but I clearly am not uh, a black belt yet. I'm running lion 1071 and everything is kept up to date religiously. Is there any way I can keep the firewire drives sleeping until they are called upon for their respective tasks by the system and prevent them from spinning up whenever I need to use the machine? Thanks so much for any guidance. And of course, for the guidance you've given in your shows to date. All right, John, why don't you take this one and then we'll pass it around. The answer is yes, there is a way to prevent them from spinning up. Really? Yes, there is. Go. Eject them before <laughs> you put the, I, I'm yeah, being no, serious. That's true. That is the answer. No, I have noticed this. Uh, so first off, it's not a lion issue. I noticed this uh, on my snow leopard machine and my lion machine. And, it, and it, but, it happened in Leopard, too. I think prior to Leopard, there was a slightly more asynchronicity with this stuff. Um, oh, by the police? <laughs> asynchronicity. Oh, that was synchronicity. That's right, right. right. Um, but as far as I can tell, the default behavior of the finder is when you wake a machine up, it's going to do a survey of any drives that it sees connected to the system. And in order to do that, it has to spin them up. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. And that, that's everything I saw. I mean, I noticed that, you know, as of late, um, although now I'm on the Drobo, but I had very recently a uh, external drive uh, in a Firewire 800 enclosure on the mini and I would sleep the mini. And every time I woke it up, I would hear that drive spin up. So I, I there may be some enclosures that let you control that or, or drive firmware, depending on the drive itself, that may prevent that. But I've from what I've seen, uh, it's hard to prevent that. Short of ejecting the drive. If the drive is not seen by the computer, then it's not going to spin it up because it's not there. Now, this is a problem, though, because what if you do have a scheduled task like a time machine backup or carbon copy cloner or super duper? Well, now I found a number of options. So and I know where you're going, so I'll hand it to you after after I I say what I'm doing here. So number one is that you can and I'm going to link to it. It's a it's a hint uh, over at Macworld. One thing is you could write an automator script. Automator uh, within the finder section has a command to mount a drive and a command to unmount a drive. And, and now, unmount, for, for, the, for those of you following along at home, mount and unmount. Uh, unmount is is the same as eject. And mount is when is what happens automatically with most drives when you plug them in, that they just appear in the finder. Now, here section. is the trick, though. And this is the only tricky thing about this is that normally... Or at least uh, most people think, and, and this is why you listen to us, or this is why I found this tip. But the thing is, normally, the only way to get a drive to mount itself after you've ejected it is to power it off and power it on again. Now, obviously, you're not going to be doing that all the time. The little secret here is that the mount command, uh, it, it requires a little bit of extra information. And this article goes into detail, but basically it needs to know, I think it's the Unix device code, or where it's mapped in the Unix file system. And I think you say something mount and then slash dev slash and some code that the article tells you how to obtain and then the name of the volume and it will mount it. So uh, and that surprised me the first time I, I, I and I've seen tips like this in the past, but it surprised me that there was a way other than cycling power on the drive to get it to appear on the desktop once you've ejected it. Oh, John, let me let me enlighten you here because yes, because I because I know you're going to build on this, but, uh, yeah. but but that's one way to do it. And that's a general purpose solution is write an automator script and either run it yourself or you may be able to to get it to time itself to, to schedule it to, to do first amount and then running your your backup program. But go because you got more. 
I do. So it, for your general purpose drive mounting, certainly, you know, uh, I, I am a big fan of doing things from the command line, but it can be a pain in the neck. And frankly, mounting is something I avoid at all costs from the command line because the the syntax to do it is arcane. I need to remember, like yeah. you said, what the device ID is and what partition it is on that device and what the mount point is and all of that stuff. It's fine if you, you know, if you do the research or you know what, what it is, but uh, but it can be a pain in the neck. So disk utility to the rescue launch disk utility and you mm -hmm. can mount and unmount drives right in there with a single click. You highlight the drive and choose mount or choose unmount. There's a little uh, at the top of disk utility in the little toolbar. There's a mount and an unmount uh, icon. So that's one way of doing it manually. Now, uh, as far as his question, now he says he's using this for two purposes. As you said, time machine. I don't have a magic answer for that. Oh, but and what that will do. Yeah, I just want to add some info. Also in disk utility. Here's the other thing is that if you click on the drive and you uh, you, you do a right click or control click, there's going to be an information section. One of the pieces of information. So here's what it's called. The disk identifier. It's so like, for example, the disk identifier and the drive of my Mac mini is disk zero S two. Right. So, it, yeah, it's disk that that would be disk zero partition three, I think. Right. Isn't that how it works? And that's zero uh, one and two. I don't know, but yeah, yeah, that's why I don't. That's why I don't do it from the terminal. Right. It's a pain in the neck. Uh, and you've also got to tell it if you want to mount it, read, write, and all that other stuff. Isn't there? There's there's some more switches you need to do at the command line with that. But anyway, do it. Do it in disk utility if you don't want to learn the the terminal command, and it works just fine. Uh, the other thing uh, he mentioned that the second drive is being used for his daily carbon copy clone. I use super duper. You mentioned super duper. It has a feature that is purpose built for exactly what you and frankly, I want to do because I got sick and tired of waiting for my drive to spin up too. what you can do is you set your super duper schedule for, uh, you know, what, whatever you want to do. But but you set after the uh, backup completes or after the, the clone or whatever it calls it completes, eject the drive and it will eject the drive and then quit super duper. It also remembers where that drive is. So the next day when super duper launches, it remounts the drive for you backs up to it or clones to it and then unmounts it again. So the drive's not sitting on your desktop. You're not worried about spotlight potentially grabbing it. Uh, although super duper should set the spotlight state on that drive to maintain its, uh, its exclusion. But, uh, but it really, really handy to do it that way. And, and for, for, you know, I know carbon copy cloner is free and super duper is not, but perhaps that's uh, that's enough to make it worth the price. I know for me, it was, it was the, that was the thing that made um, me jump to super duper. You know, looking here, so one, so, uh, you know, almost live, but I got an email back from Mark and uh, apparently the latest version of copy, Carbon Copy Cloner, I think it's 3.4.3, are they up to? Yes. Yep. Um, has in the scheduled section ah. a before copying files and a after copying files. It looks a bit more primitive. It looks like you have to run a shell script. Okay. So it's not quite as nice as Super Duper, but I think they got the inspiration because sure. people have run into, yeah, this is an old problem. So, uh, yeah, it sucks. It, it drives me crazy uh, to have those drives, you know, wait for them to spin up. It's I, I'm, I'm totally with you, Mark. Yeah. All right. Is it time to uh, where are we here? Time wise. Whoa. Holy cow. Uh, you know, I want to talk about our second sponsor. It's Gazelle at Gazelle.com. There's some little event happening over there at uh, in Cupertino tomorrow. 
Uh, and uh, and so, you know, there's probably going to be some iPhone released. And last week, you know, as we mentioned, they announced uh, new Kindles coming. Well, what if you have the old one or the existing one, but you want to get the new one because you're, well, you're a geek and you want the latest and greatest. Uh, you can do that. But now what, what do you do with the old one? Well, you go to gazelle.com and you type in what you have, the model, the condition, all of that. And Gazelle will tell you, here's how much we'll give you for it. Uh, it's pretty cool. And then with most stuff, uh, they'll they'll pay for shipping. And also with most stuff, they'll even send you a box if you like. And you pack your thing into the box. You ship it off at their cost. They get it. They evaluate it. Make sure it is what you said it was. And they send you your money. Uh, if it's not, if they, if their opinion is that it's different, either better or worse than what you said, they'll give you the opportunity to either take whatever their offer is or decline and they'll ship it back to you again at their cost. Gazelle's had over 200,000 customers. They've been around a while uh, and it's really cool. It's actually a lot of fun. I find myself going to gazelle.com anytime I pick up a little gadget around that, you know, if I'm cleaning my office, like, Oh, this, this old iPod, let me see. And sometimes, you know, it's like, Hey, you know, you get some money out of it. All right, great. And it's better than having it sitting around. So you're turning those piles of gadgets into cash and cash is good because then with the cash, you can pay your credit card bill for the new iPhone or the new Kindle or whatever it is. So check it out. Gazelle.com. And, uh, and the sooner you get there, the better. Because uh, because, you know, my guess is uh, that over time, the prices of these things usually go down. Though, of course, there's some little things that cause prices on used stuff to spike. But uh, but check it out. Gazelle dot com. That's where I go to dump all my old stuff off. And uh, I highly recommend them. It's a it's a pleasure to have sponsors that we can actually recommend. And, and Gazelle's certainly one of them. Uh, is it time to uh, let's see, why don't we go? Why don't we go to Michael here? I want to make sure we get okay. through a couple of these things. Okay. Uh, I'm looking here. No, you know what? Let's go to Adam. Let's go to Adam. We'll, well, Adam's, Adam, this is good stuff. This is good stuff. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. So Adam writes, I have a small studio set up where users store their files locally on their Macs running Leopard and also on a central Mac Pro server running Snow Leopard server. I know that when these users delete something that's on the server, they're presented with the all too familiar. Your file will be deleted immediately message. I was wondering whether there's a way to set things up in snow leopard servers so that these users can open edit and save files as usual on the server, but be prevented from actually deleting them. Uh, this would help my workflow immensely as I have users who are not particularly tech savvy and currently rely on shielding these users from important files and careful guidance and training to avoid them accidentally deleting or overwriting anything. Uh, so this is similar to our, our network delete that I think we discussed in the last show, right, John, but, uh, but go ahead. So, you know, there is a way, so I'm going to address the specific question of, is there a way to prevent a file from being deleted on a network volume? Yeah. And the answer is yes, though. I'm not really happy with my answer here. So I was able to find the answer, Dave, but I don't like it. And I'm going to make another, but first I'm going to give you the observation. And this actually happened because I was clearing out one of my network drives the other day, or, you know, I got the new, new Drobo here and I was, I was, you know, cleaning things up and I wanted to get rid of a folder full of, of stuff I didn't need anymore. So, you know, of course it was a network volume. I deleted it. And then all of a sudden a message came up 
saying the operation can't be completed because you don't have permission to access some of the items. And I'm like, what? It's my stuff. How, ca- how can I not have permission? I'm administrator. I'm the, I'm the man. Here's what it was eventually. So then I look in that folder and I see on the, on the icon, a, a tiny little, because I have the, the, the size of the icon really small. I saw a little lock. Where does that little lock come from? I'll tell you where it comes from. If you get info on a file, you can lock the file and that limits access to it. If for whatever reason, network, for the most part, if files are locked and you delete them on the local volume, you'll either get, I think in Lion, it just creams them. And in Snow Leopard, I think it'll give you, it'll say up, oh, well, I see some locked and unlocked. But uh, so, so it doesn't look like it's reliable for local volumes, but for a, a network trash, Uh, My experience is that you'll get this message saying it's like a permission issue. So you could make a workflow where you lock, you ask people to lock files when they're done with them. But to me, that's kind of a hack. All right. Yep. So I answered this question, but I don't like the answer. What, What I really would suggest is, so it sounds like what's happening here is that the workflow involves manipulating folders and files. And if you're going to be doing any sort of projects that involves lots of files all over the place and people have ownership of them and they're editing and all that, what I really am going to suggest is that you get something known as a content management system. Uh, we use one in Mac Observer. I believe we use, we use something called Expressions Engine, which is more you know web page based, right? Yeah, well, that's that's a web publishing system. I think I think what, okay. what you'd want to go but the, with, but yeah. But there are others which I would say are more general, and that I'll call them content management systems because they're not uh, really geared towards it. right. So Expressions is specific to websites, and there are some others, and and I gave him the name of of, of a few, and we'll, we'll link to them. I found them, but the idea is that you have a system that can manage projects that consists of a group of files. Yeah, I think I think something like, you know, an, a, a version control system would be the the trick, right? Checking files in and out. Um version control uh, and I want to be I want to be I want to differentiate the two is that to me a version control system is something that's more for software people in that it'll handle pieces of source code. And there are some uh like one I know that's popular that's open source is called Subversion. Yep. Uh, in the Microsoft world, there's something called SourceSafe. Um, CVS is another one, but those I think are more geared to handling source code that's used to build software. When I think of something called a content management system, that's a bit more generic. And then I think you certainly uh, I, could. I, I would put, be careful with that term too, because CMS really refers to publishing on the web. I mean that that if you if you research content management system, you're going to find WordPress and Expression Engine. And, you know, uh, Drupal and Joomla and and all of that. So I, I'm, I'm just wondering if you have a specific example of what this person could use. Well, I found some others that, that didn't seem to be to be okay. web focused. Yeah, maybe maybe that's just my my prejudice. Right. Showing up here because I anytime somebody says CMS to me, I think, oh, that's, you know, web publishing. But, but no, you're right. But I, I saw some others here and I hadn't hadn't used them. So actually, it, okay. uh, this will be a, a call to like I found a few here, like one called Plone. OK. And another called Mambo, which looked to be more generic in that they, they managed group of files and weren't necessarily meant to only publish things to the web. Joomla certainly is. I, I've used Joomla and that that's. For the most part, I think something that that manages content that you publish to the web. Right. So. Right. So actually, I'd be curious um, because I, I know. 
back in my corporate gig, Quark had something that was, uh, I, I think, a general system that would manage, uh, and the graphic artists would use it, and it would manage projects that consisted of graphic files yeah. for the most part. I think Adobe has that, right? Called Adobe versions or something like that, right? Is, is one uh, of them. They could. So that's a space that I'm not really familiar with, but but I, I want to present the concept. So yep. version control system, again, is more, more for software. And I mentioned a few, we'll link to them. As you're saying, Dave, I think, yeah, now that I think about it, that, that may be not the right term because it, uh, I think, yeah, as you say, CMS implies web-based. And then I think there are just general systems yeah, like Adobe and Quark, and I'll I'll dig around and see if I can find some to put in the uh, check out something. Uh, and I, I I'm just pulling this up now, but there is something called HyperOffice, which is a document version control system. So that you know that might be something else to look at. Yeah, so so I think you want to get a more structured uh, workflow. Yeah, um, and uh, because what they what they all do though is embrace the concept of allowing user to take a file and check it into the server, and once it's in the server. Unless you explicitly delete it, which they typically, a lot of them don't even let you, <laughs> it'll maintain it for you. And the, and the other thing is that when you have a group of files, a lot of times the group of files is used to make something. And especially with software, once you have so many files, uh, I mean, sometimes it's impossible, almost impossible to remember which version of a file, whether it be source code or a digital file was used to create the end product. And that's what these systems do very well. So. So it, what's interesting is if you look and, and John, you'd even find this on your Drobo, uh, the folder itself is hidden. But if you look, you will see it uh, is a folder called the network trash folder. And it sure sounds like that's what uh, what Adam's looking for. Now, the problem is it, it is what Adam's looking for, but it's only there for clients of OS nine. And I think OS 10.0 and maybe 10.1 after that, uh, the network trash folder is no longer used. It's seen by OS 10 and it's hidden, but it's not used in that way uh, on some things. And you might be able to do this on Snow Leopard server, uh, Adam, is you create a um, a folder at the root level of whatever the share is called dot trashes with a capital T. Uh and then and you make the folder owned by root, uh, writable by everyone. And that on a on a on a Snow Leopard server machine, that may actually do what you're looking for. It may allow people to store trash on the network drive, but you've got to manually create that. And uh, and that might work. I, I, no guarantees. And of course, I don't have a, a server machine up because the, the power supply died in my uh, in my um, my, my leopard server machine, my, my dual G four. So I, I could not test that for you, but that's, that, that's certainly an option and, uh, and worth, and worth trying out. Uh, so we'll, we'll put a link in the show notes. I, I earlier today, I found an article about it that tells you exactly how to set the permissions if you're not comfortable doing that. But chances are, if you're, if you're managing a snow leopard server, you are. So, so try that dot trashes with a capital T and, and set it so that everyone can write to it and it's owned by root. And then I think your users are going to have to unmount that drive and remount it before OS 10 will see that dot trashes folder. So just include that into your testing workflow. Don't 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 get frustrated if you create that folder and it doesn't work immediately. I, I did try it on my Drobo today mm -hmm. uh, and it did not work, which is sort of a drag mm -hmm. because it would have been nice if it did. But um, but and so but he's running Snow Leopard server. So and a final suggestion. Yeah, go. 
because it's kind of magic when I notice this feature in Dropbox. Oh, when yeah. You get rid of a file. Uh, Dropbox supports a very fundamental form of, uh, or a very basic form of versioning. Yeah. And then if you replace a file, you can step back in time. But even if you delete a file, I believe for a certain amount of time, it will let you undelete it. Yeah, so you may want to days. consider. Okay. So you may want to consider for, you may want to consider, uh, you know, either getting the freebie or depending on the amount of storage you need, uh, getting Dropbox for these folks and asking that they use, uh, you know, put the project files in Dropbox. So if they do accidentally delete it, they can go to Dropbox and recover it again within the 30 day time frame. For small files, that works. If it's huge graphics files, Dropbox, yeah. of course, by nature of it, uploading everything to the, the cloud might not. Oh, be, sure. You know, sure. It may or may not be. So, yeah, there you go. Sure. So, but I thought that was neat one time because I think, yeah, you, you and I use Dropbox to you know, coordinate the show. And I think one time I, I had a brain fart and I deleted a deleted the folder of stuff. And I'm like, Oh no, Dave's going to kill me. <laughs> and then I went to the server and it's like, Oh yeah, you know, you just did this. And, and there was a choice, you know, undelete. Yep. So save my bacon at least once. <clears throat> All right. Tracy writes, uh, and, and Tracy will help us migrate from questions to tips as we wrap up the show for today. But, uh, but Tracy writes, I have a question about Time Machine taking way too long for backups. Backups on my iMac can easily take 30 minutes or more for just 5 to 10 megs worth of files. For instance, when the computer has only been used to check something online between backups. Uh, I'm using a 1 terabyte iOmega Minimax attached using uh, a FireWire cable. I noticed this problem when my backup drive filled up, which was around the same time that my logic board needed to be replaced. I've tested the cable with other drives as well as just copying files on and off the iOmega drive. All seems to be fine. The only time there's a slowdown is with Time Machine. Any ideas on what the issue might be? So, yeah, um, it's possible that your Time Machine backup is either corrupted or almost corrupted, and the system is constantly having to do kind of a, a rescan of the whole thing each time the way you would know this uh, because it will not tell you uh, directly is to open up the console and just do a little search. You can filter it. I would go to all messages, uh, but just do a filter type the word backup. Uh, and, and that usually will show you things because backup D is often the process that, uh, that, will, mm -hmm. that will spit out these messages and you'll see as it starts a backup, you'll see, okay, you know, uh, finding the drive, selecting how many files it needs for backup. And if you see at some point in that where it says, uh, you know, deep scan or deep traversal of the backup, that gives you an indication that should not happen every time. Uh, in fact, it should only happen very rarely. Oh, right. So if you're seeing that, I, I think you've got a problem. And unfortunately with, with time machine, there's, there's no real repair option for backups. It's, blow it away and start from scratch, uh, which, which always scares me because you, you have this period of time where you have no backup. So if you can clone to something else, at least in the interim, it means it does mean losing your history with time machine. And I don't know, you know, depending on, on how you manage your life, that may or may not be an important thing to you, but, uh, but you know, I, I think my guess is that's what's going on, Tracy. Uh, and John, I think you went through something like this recently, right? Where I, did. Yep. So I have two suggestions. Number one, you may want to go to the time machine menu and hold down 
the option key and say verify backups. That I think will do a integrity check on your backup file and yep. may tell you if there's a problem. The other thing is, you know, I had this problem and eventually I, I threw in the towel and I, I wiped it and did a new one. But I would see the message, Dave. So you're absolutely correct. If you see this deep transversal, that means that what is on the time machine and what's on the hard drive, for some reason, time machine thinks that they're way out of sync. And then, yeah, it'll it'll look at every file on the source drive. And yeah, that takes a real long time. But the other message I saw was waiting for index, waiting ah. for index, waiting for in And I don't know if it was because I migrated from uh, Snow Leopard to Lion, but it seemed to happen more often after that. But it was taking so long is that I would see it, yeah, for a relatively small amount of data. And I would see the message in my time machine menu as well it would just say waiting and also in the console but i would get that message sometimes for 10 20 30 minutes and and then it would eventually get around to backing up the files which in you know like in this case a lot of times i would have backups that were very small on the order of yeah 10 or 100 megabytes so i think what happens is also the file gets so complex and so complicated that you you got to start from scratch. And that's what I did. I, yeah. I wiped it out and I created a new one. I, you know, hooked up via ethernet and let it run overnight because, you know, I was backing up uh, many gigabytes. Right. But right. That's my uh, observation right, so, slash advice. So Tracy mentioned that this happened uh, after the new machine came. Uh, and Tracy writes as a little advice for your listeners. If I ever need to take my computer in to be worked on again, I will first deauthorize my computer from iTunes over the years due to recycling computers at home and at work. I reached my five computer limit. When my logic board was replaced, iTunes asked me to reauthorize the computer, which it could not do because there were five already, including the one uh, of the logic board I no, no longer had. Ended up doing a deauthorize all. Not a big deal, but it could have been avoided. This is excellent advice. When you send something or bring something into Apple, uh, especially if you're under Apple Care, a, a replacement logic board is something that happens a lot. Uh, it is an easy way to fix a lot of problems. And, uh, and, and oftentimes is what you need, but, uh, but there's so much stuff tied to that motherboard. Yeah. And the iTunes authorization is one of them. And it's really not a big deal to reauthorize your computer for iTunes. If nothing has changed, you get it home, you reauthorize. It's no big deal. Uh, if the logic board has changed and you've deauthorized, it's also no big deal. You just reauthorize. That's it. Uh, so the process is the same, but if you haven't, then yeah, that's it. You can't go through and selectively deauthorize a computer you don't have. So the only way to do it is to go into your iTunes account, deauthorize all, uh, which you can only do once every either once every six months or once every 12 months. So definitely uh, that, that's good advice. I like it. So thank you. Uh, thank you, Tracy, for sharing that along with us. Yes. And you can do it once per year. OK. And I have the article in front of me, which I'll link to, of course. But yeah. uh, well, I think they'll do it again. But then you got to call them and you got to beg. Right. Right. So uh, while we're talking about uh, doing tips and sharing uh, stories of, of genius things uh, and, and, and interesting things happen with Apple, Apple service, Jeff uh, shares a story, which we'll share with you. He has been going through an issue with uh, his MacBook pro, I believe. And it, there's some issue where this machine kept crashing uh, when he was uh, playing games or doing anything with video, and it was pretty obvious, at least on the surface, that there was some problem with the graphics chip. So uh, with that in the background here, he says, 
Uh, let's see. I made an appointment at the Genius Bar. They ran hardware diagnostics and found nothing wrong. I was sent home and was suggested that I wait for a software update. Headed home to another couple of crashes and another phone call to set up a second Genius appointment. This time, they wouldn't make an appointment for me unless I agreed to pay the one-time service charge. I asked for a supervisor since it was the same problem ongoing and was greeted with a dial tone. Uh, by this time, I was a little on the frustrated side, but tried to maintain professionalism. I scoured the forums on the Apple support site and found some folks that were suffering the same kind of issues were having good luck by sending an email to now CEO Tim Cook. This is not my normal MO, but I thought it might be worth a shot. So I crafted a respectful letter and hit send. That very same day, I received a call from Apple Executive Relations and was assigned a genius appointment for a replacement logic board at no charge. There was no mention of exactly what it was, but it was communicated that the logic board replacement will take care of the problems you are experiencing. I dropped the machine off and a week later went in to pick it up before leaving the store. I fired it up and within five minutes, I had crashed twice in the same manner. This time was with a completely fresh install of Lion on a presumably fresh motherboard. The genius finally saw it happen and looked quite surprised to see it bomb the way it did. He spoke to the genius gods, and I left with a replacement machine of the current generation. Uh, I still don't know exactly what the issue was, and another phone call with the executive relations folks kind of confirmed that there's an issue. However, they would not name the exact cause. Though it was a little on the frustrating side and took longer than I had hoped to get things resolved, I have an extremely hard time being upset at the outcome. Apple once again made sure that I would continue my loyalty by the way they took care of me. And this fits in uh, with a note that we got from one of our genius listeners that basically said, you know, treat your geniuses with respect and honesty and uh, and and you'll get the same. So, you know, factor all this together. And, and this certainly isn't the first time we've shared a story of Apple replacing a machine uh, or that the executive relations or customer relations department uh, helping out a user. But but they are there and uh, and they do stand behind their customers. So it, the the moral of this story is. A, be polite, but be persistent and and let Apple give Apple the chance to help you, because uh, as as these stories that constantly resurface uh, prove they will. And uh, and if you're reasonable about it and you're not asking for something that's totally, uh, you know, off the off the charts and a new computer is not off the charts. Uh, John and I have both been through experiences, which we've told you about, where we've gotten brand new machines because there's been some problems. And it really isn't that difficult. Again, as long as the circumstances support it, Apple will do it. So just bear that in mind uh, to stay persistent with with support problems. Uh, so that's Jeff. I learned something new. I didn't know about oh. this executive relations. Well, that, that's the customer number. That's the customer relations team. And you, oh, yeah, okay. it's the okay. same team. It's either executive relations or customer relations. I think they may have changed the name of the team, but it's the same people. It's not Apple so, care. It's not support. So, so it's the lesson here to write to Tim Cook. If you well, have a problem. <laughs> no, you know, I think I don't, in this case, I don't think he it, certainly writing to Tim's, you know, fast track this, but I also think that just calling again, don't, if it gets to this point and you have to have mm. gone through support at, at several times, probably three uh, is, mm. is sort of the minimum. But once you've gone through that, uh, call the main Apple number, which I think is 408-996-1010 uh, and, and ask for customer relations and make it clear that you're not looking for customer support. And if they say, we don't know who that is now ask for executive relations or the office of the president, it's all the same thing. And, and most large companies have these, these are like the top level customer service ninjas, 
right? And uh, and they're just there to keep customers happy is really what it is. So they look at what you've, you know, what you've claimed and, and they'll go through. So I think it, it, you know, to fast track here, I think Jeff could have called that department and, uh, and, and gotten, perhaps gotten the same resolution. Of course, having Tim tell that department what to do uh, helps. So perhaps this is the right answer. I don't know. I don't, it's probably not a path Apple wants to, uh, to, to, uh, to set as a precedent, but you know, I think Tim mm-hmm. Cook inherited that job with uh, the precedent being, if you have a problem, just email the CEO, you know, because Steve Jobs certainly was, was known to be that type of guy. So, and Dave, did you say 408-996-1010? I did. Good memory, man. Thanks. Because I, I if you go to, because if you go to www.apple.com slash contact, and you know, hats off to them for making URLs that make sense. That lists all the contacts, but up in the upper right hand corner of that page. So that is their main telephone number, which yeah. I guess it has been for years, if you remember it. <laughs> uh, well, I just got a, I was talking to him about some stuff and the other day. So I got, I, I, when I, it, that's the number I know on my cell phone. It's like, oh, it's Apple, presumably Apple PR calling, but you know, probably oh, someone right. at Apple. So yeah, 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 that's, that's the number. Um, all right. Let's scare, let's scare. Let's share. share. It's <laughs> not Halloween quite yet. Oh, no, it's not. Let's let's share this little tip from uh, from our friend Scott, and then we'll uh, and then we'll wrap this one up. Hi, John and Dave. Another quickie on three fifty five. Well, this should be quicker than the last one. Uh, I found a good way of keeping and managing the serial numbers from all the software that I've used and downloaded and also helps me keep an inventory of those that I've paid for. And that is using one password. One password has a section where you can keep all this information. And what I do is that one password database file is backed up to the cloud using Dropbox. So if something should happen, the one password file is in Dropbox. I reload, re-download one password. I have a separate text file with one password key in it that's separate. And then it just unlocks that particular file and I can go ahead and install everything. And one of the key issues is getting all those numbers right. Well, once you have them electronically, one password lets you uh, copy and paste them into various places so you don't have to worry about sitting and typing all over again. However, Microsoft Office being the pain in the rump that it is, the copy and paste won't work, so it's the only one that you have to go in and heck by, by hand, hoping that you get every one of those little four-number, four-lettered things correct all the way through so you can re-engage Microsoft Office. But this is a good feature of 1Password and another reason why everybody should own a copy. Yes, John, you should own a copy too. <laughs> this is Scott, DC, a little shorter, signing out under two minutes. Bye. Thanks, Scott. Now, it, it, that's I, I never thought about using one password like that, but that's a uh, that's a fantastic little little tidbit of advice. Yeah, my system's a a bit less organized. Yeah, most wh- of it, most of it is email, dude. Is that I got the keys in my email and I just back on my email. Some of them are screen snapshots in my pictures folder. 
And uh, some are in uh, uh, Notepad? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so my stuff's all over the place. And some of it is, believe it, or stickies. I still use stickies for uh, some of my data. But uh, I, believe it or not. I recommend putting it all in one place. It doesn't matter. No, no. You see, that, that makes it too is. easy. You know, because <laughs> now, Dave, I got the sense of adventure when I need one of these pieces of data. And also, some of it is still on physical media. I still have, uh, you know, some... A lot of it is still stuff that I had from CD, you know, like Office, for example. Well, one I one is a screen snapshot, but I have older versions of Office where the, the code was on the uh, the case for the CD. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm just a mess in that respect. So I should really get my act together. Yeah. So I... Uh, Thank you, Scott, for uh, for your suggestion. I'll be sure not to take it. <laughs> now, now, you mentioned a sense of adventure, John, and it made me think of, of what I've been dealing with in the house for the past week or so. Uh, our, our dishwasher has gotten to the point. Listen, this thing, it, this, there, there's a bit of technology in it. Oh, yeah. You, you said you, you were you, you were looking for the next big thing, and uh, so, so your, your old one's on the way out. Well, if it washes dishes fine once you get it to yeah. run, but the thing is, uh, some th- not sometimes, most of the time, if you just press the button to start the cycle, it starts like in the middle of the cycle. Uh, so you have to press some combination of the keys to convince it to start at the beginning. So it, it's half like uh, you're you're diffusing a bomb because if you press the wrong button, it starts in the middle of the cycle and you got to like stop it and, and you know so, you don't cut the red wire. But so the other- you could try to get a new control board if you can even find one and figure out how to replace it yourself. That right. I could. That's right. But but the other part is it, it's like hacking a, a password every time. But it's a it's a rotating code. See, because it's not the same sequence of keys that I have to press to get it to reset back to. to and can you one. tell like by the sound that it yeah. makes whether it's all right? So whether it's at the beginning or the middle of the end. Yeah. All right. So you. So, <laughs> it's, so it's fun every day. You know, I'm I gotta say, don't replace. I'm the only one in the family that that is willing to do this. If 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 the if the family wants to run the dishwasher, you know, they'll say, "Oh, the dishwasher's loaded. We need you to go touch it." <laughs> That's I'm the only one that'll start. And, it, and you so. know, you got to think about it, Dave, because I mean, once life gets too easy and you get into this routine, yeah, where you can find your CD keys easily, and when you turn on your dishwasher and it always does the same thing, life kind of gets boring. It's boring. Yeah. So we we spent I don't know whatever it was, eight hundred bucks or whatever on a brand new dishwasher. But the, the problem was with dishwashers, there's, and we, it's not here yet. It'll be here in a couple weeks or whatever, or a week. Uh, but, you know, the, the pro- my, my complaint was if I got to go spend money on a dishwasher or any new appliance, I want some cool new feature, especially if it's, you know, it's been like, you know, 10 years or 15 years How or many? Whatever. Wh- so, but there's How no many features. New features. That's the thing. It's just a stupid dishwasher. So I obsessed over the one thing that's gotten better in the last uh, whatever ten years, mm-hmm. and that's sound. So we bought a Bosch dishwasher that operates at forty six decibels. Now I think our current one is about. Wow. I think our current one's probably in the, in the sixties. Most dishwashers are between fifty five and sixty. For those of you playing along at home, every three decibels doubles the sound. So so mm. for, yeah. So so we got well, forty. I guess. I don't know. It's like, you, you know, know I, I got a pretty crazy. new GE one. And I would say the only features that are important to me. So there's a wash and a light wash. So if, it, if yeah, it's full of grimy wash. stuff. Family. Okay. Yeah. It's just me. So unless, you know, I've been, you know, really messing up the dishes, I'll typically do a light wash. Otherwise, I'll do a wash. And, and the only thing is sometimes maybe I'll do high temp rinse or wash. If, if it's a really grimy stuff. Other than that, I mean, yeah, as you're saying, I mean, though I saw online, 
you know, the, the conversation. I mean, yeah. I think they even have now, like I've seen uh, Samsung, for example, is introducing some web-connected appliances, but... I don't maybe, need my- maybe maybe for for your refrigerator it makes sense. It could you know suggest recipes and stuff based on what it thinks is inside of it. But for a dishwasher, do you really need to know? You push no. the button and you, and you need to know what it's done dishes. at the most part. That's right. We, we like the delayed start feature, so we made sure to get one. Oh, with that. mine has that. Yeah. yeah, I think it's two, four, or six hours. You can say. Well, yeah. why, why would you want to? This, oh, this one will go nineteen. Yeah. Well, it's actually uh-huh. nice for a loud dishwasher, and of course, this might not matter. Uh, and we will wrap up the show here, folks. <laughs> this is usually pr- post-show conversation. I don't know why we're we're doing this here, but anyway, uh, uh, it, with a loud dishwasher, it's nice to say, you know, do it while I'm asleep or, or whatever, and I'm not in the kitchen. But, uh, hey. but with this one at 46 dB, it might not matter. But okay, so for those of you that want to contact us about anything, preferably about the Mac and what we understand, if you need to rant about your appliances, because obviously we do that here. Uh, you can email us at feedback at macgeekgab.com. And I will reiterate that, Dave. It is feedback at macgeekgab.com. Feedback at macgeekgab.com. Unless you are one of our premium members, and then you can email us at premium at What, what is premium, Dave? 25 tell bucks me. for six months. Gets you two extra episodes a month. Access to all the archives. That warm, fuzzy feeling you get from supporting myself and John and access to the email premium at MacGeekab.com. And we really do appreciate uh, those of you that have been signing up and those of you that have been signed up. It's uh, it's it's truly an honor and a pleasure to uh, thank you to produce this show for all of you, uh, those of you premium and, and, and everyone else every uh, every week or or more often as the case is. Uh, you can also call us 206-666-GEEK, which is 4335. What? Did I, I cut you off on that, didn't I? You stole my thunder. I stole your and thunder. And you, you just stomped I on know. the band. I know. It's oh. crazy. Well, I'll get the band going again. <sighs> you got one more strike. Come on. Okay. Mess uh, something else up. Let go. me screw something else up. So <laughs> you can go to uh, <laughs> Facebook.com slash MacGeekGab. Did I get that right? Absolutely, and when you go there, we've we've been having uh, some discussions. Uh, I would say the other methods we mentioned for submitting questions are good, but hey, it's Facebook. Yeah, go for it. Um, But but Facebook will show you when uh, when the podcast comes out, when the show notes are complete, and uh, also if you want to post on our wall, you know, come over there, like us. you know, the more the merrier, and it's just a, another uh, aspect of the uh, Mac Geek App community. All right. Right? Yeah, absolutely. What else? Oh, and speaking of community, well, the other thing, I mean, you, you and I and almost everybody hangs out here, right? But Twitter, I am John F. Braun. He is Dave Hamilton. Pilot Pete, who is piloting somewhere, is Pilot Pete. The podcast where you can get podcast news is MacGeekGab and MacObserver, all on Twitter.com. We'd like to thank Michael Johnston from the We Have Communicators podcast. He converts this show to AAC for you. It's a great podcast, all about uh, the iPhone, iPad, and iOS stuff in general. Uh, Cashfly.com provides all the bandwidth. And our podcast marketplace in October includes the A2 desktop speakers from Audio Engine, Text Expander from Smile, BB Edit from Barebone Software, 
Gazelle at gazelle.com. And I think I'll be at Blog World Expo, but uh, but I'm not sure because the sessions with podcasting have been, frankly, kind of a mess this year. So I don't know if I'm speaking. And I think if I'm not speaking, I'm not going to go But because uh, I've got other crazy stuff scheduled. But Blog World Expo is there. Uh, and you can get uh, 50% off an Expo Pass with Observer 5.0. All that's through the Backbeat Media Podcast Network. That's it, John. Let's get out of here. Right? Before I screw something else up. No, you did good. Well, you know. I'm tired today. I know I don't sound it. I sound like a maniac, but uh but You're yeah. always you're you're a high energy dude. I know. It is what it is. Thanks again, folks. We will be back on Thursday for a premium episode 357. Between now and then, have fun. Don't get caught. Made up.